Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. In uh, February of this year, of 2016, uh, a major case uh, went to court dealing with the subject of forgery in the art world. And this involved a gallery in New York City with a very long history and a Chinese immigrant painter. So we're going to start this episode by talking a little bit about this story, the background of it, but uh, the the sort of bigger issues at stake that we want to discuss are uh, have to do with issues of of copying and authenticity and tradition and um, how these are very loaded terms with uh, very different meanings and contexts in the United States versus China. We're going to start by talking about a particular gallery in New York, the Nudler Gallery, um, which has been the subject of of a lot of scandal and a number of of court cases, uh, as I mentioned, one of which just came to trial and actually settled, as we'll discuss later, uh, in February. Since the early 2000s, the long-established art gallery Nudler and Company uh, had been the subject of rumors regarding the authenticity of a number of its works, uh, most notably uh, works that were claimed to be by mid-20th century uh, masters like Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, and Robert Motherwell. Now, uh, to start off, Nudler is uh, a gallery or was a gallery with a very long history. It's often referred to as the oldest gallery in New York City. Uh, It had been around since 1846 and was an offshoot of a Paris-based dealership gallery and print firm called Goupy. In 2009, uh, the gallery's president, Anne Friedman, resigned. And her resignation is often tied in the press to these persisting rumors that a number of works the gallery had sold had been forgeries and that her resignation was linked to investigations into the gallery's practices. Uh, Two years later, in 2011, in November, the gallery announced its closure. And the statement that they issued referred to its closure being a, quote, business decision. It didn't say anything about these alleged forgeries. I mean, I I remember when that announcement came out that Nodler was closing. And it's sort of hard for people who are not... um, you know, historians of 20th century art, or, you know, actively participating in the in the art world to understand the magnitude of the shock. And I mean, maybe not the shock, because there had been all these rumors that have been going on for a while about them having problems, but they hadn't really gotten into the ultra contemporary market. And as we've, you know, spoken before in our episode on, you know, the art market today with our guest interviewee, uh, Natasha Deegan, um, right now, a lot of the, the the heat, the attention, the energy, the money is in ultra contemporary stuff, and they never really got into that. So, you know, they weren't necessarily, you know, a name that was on everybody's lips for the past couple of years. But still, I mean, they were just such a, a, a sort of mega gallery in terms of just the history of the city. So it was it was really shocking um, when they closed. I remember thinking, like, you know, it's just like a piece of of history has been lost. You know, like we can't. 
we're not going to open up a new gallery that's been around for 150 years. That's not how it works. So it's yeah. really sad. Yeah. And um, there, uh, you know, one of the I remember one of the, the big questions that came up was what was going to happen to their archives? Um, because besides being a functioning gallery, they had all these archives related to major artists that whose works were were um, were dealt were held by the gallery. And now those archives are actually at the Getty Museum, one of the biggest archives, archives of art and its history in the United States. So I mean, that alone, I think, speaks to its significance. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Since the gallery closed in 2011, a number of suits have been filed both against Nodler and against Friedman, um, the, the former director. Um, the, but the most major case, the one that's garnered the most attention, is the one mounted by <coughs> Domenico de Sol, uh, the current chairman of Tom Ford International and Sotheby, Sotheby's and the director of Gap uh, and his wife, Eleanor. And the DeSoles had purchased a work that was purportedly by Marth Mark Rothko in 2004 for $8.3 million. Their lawsuit in which they claimed that this work was a forgery included the seeking of damages uh, of $25 million. In February of this year, it was announced that uh, Friedman and the DeSoles had settled out of court. Um, now, theirs was not the only case that, that has come up that has alleged forgery charges against, against Friedman and Nudler. There have been five other lawsuits that have settled out of court and four that are still uh, awaiting trial. Now, these suits against Friedman claim that she perpetrated this fraud, that she uh, knew that these were forgeries, but she has um, adamantly maintained that she is also a victim that she didn't know and that she uh, did not sell, knowingly sell forged works. Now, uh, a little bit of backstory of as far as what we know, how these forgeries, what we know now are forgeries, uh, came to be in possession of Nudler, how they were sold to various parties. Um, so going backwards from the Nudler Gallery, uh, they had purchased uh, a number of works from a Long Island dealer named Glafira Rosales. <laughs> she, along with her then-boyfriend, Jose Carlos Bargantinos Diaz and his brother had had these forgeries fabricated um, along with these very elaborate backstories, which explained where they would have come from. And uh, Rosalise claimed she was supposedly acting on behalf of a collector who wanted to remain anonymous. She actually pled guilty all the way back in 2013 and is awaiting sentencing. Uh, her accomplices, the Diaz brothers, were arrested in Spain and released on bail in 2014. In 2016, in February of this year, uh, the Spanish court ruled that they could be extradited to the United States. This was a big question after 2014 was, um, you know, they had they had fled to Spain, presumably to avoid prosecution in the United States. And just this year, it was decided that they could be extradited and and prosecuted in the United States. In terms of, you know, the, the culpability here, the role that um, Anne Friedman played in um, perpetrating this fraud. I mean, you know, you just have to imagine, okay, you're a, a director of a very well-respected gallery, uh, the kind of gallery where your clients aren't really going to question you and, you know, demand like provenance papers and dig very deeply because your name acts as a kind of guarantee of the fact that the works that you're selling obviously would not be fakes because you're such a reputable, you know, institution. 
Um, so you're a director of this gallery and a woman comes to you and says, oh, I have like a trove of works by Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko and all of these, you know, paintings which are worth multi-millions of dollars. And the way I got them is uh, there's this guy that I'm acting on behalf of who doesn't want to be named, doesn't want to be, you know, known, uh, doesn't want to meet you. Um, but he was buddies with all these guys back in the 50s. And so, you know, he got their paintings then and he's been sitting on them ever since. And that's why they've never been, you know, exhibited or they haven't appeared in any catalog raisonnés. I mean, you just, I mean, she claims she's the victim, but at a certain point, not having common sense, I think, is is actually a kind of crime. Um, I mean, it, it's just very implausible that a woman of her knowledge and you know sophistication would just believe this story. And yeah. it, it seems from uh, you know, and I'm not a conservator, and I'm not an expert in this kind of painting, but uh, it seemed like it, it when they actually took the time, you know, following these lawsuits when the time was actually taken to try to authenticate these works, it didn't seem like it really took a lot of work to determine that these were forgeries. I mean, things like um, a painting claiming, you know, they're having claimed that a painting was done by Robert Motherwell in Mexico on a certain date. And it took, you know, one expert coming in and saying he was never in Mexico at this time. And, you know, analysis of pigments and, and, you know, the determining that these, were paints that Motherwell didn't use or or that weren't even around at that point. Like, if you're dealing with a dealer, like you said, sitting on this treasure trove that nobody knows about, uh, it seems like th those would probably be pretty standard steps that one would take in order to determine authenticity of these works. I mean, uh, on one of the Pollocks, Pollock's name was spelled wrong. Right, I mean, right. It just, like, it strains credulity that, like... Yeah. <laughs> like she wouldn't have noticed that like it was spelled P-O-L-L-O-K, like without a C. I mean, it's right. Like, I mean, yeah, it's just it, the whole thing is absurd. But, you know, one of the sort of interesting fallouts of this is that, um, you know, the, the business of authentication has now become so much more risky, you know, that basically now people are, are getting out of the business of authenticating works. I mean, the Andy Warhol Museum says it won't do it anymore. The Rothkos, I mean, because they don't want to be sued by someone saying, you know, you refuse to authenticate my painting, but I think it's real. And, you know, because you won't authenticate it, I've lost out on these millions of dollars that I spent on it and I'm suing you to recover damages. So, I mean, the whole thing has just become a mess. And so, you know, scholars... Um, yeah, I mean, it's not even scholars who would really do this authentication normally. I mean, really, it would be, you know, they're, they're professional connoisseurs who do this kind of stuff. And they, you know, just have really been um, more and more reluctant to give any kind of official testimony. So it's it's made the whole process of authenticating these works that's, that much more complicated. There was recently a, a, an article that went into the sort of history of this case in depth, and we've posted it on our social media before. And We'll link to it again from our website. But uh, one of the things I found most fascinating is that, you know, there are um, there are experts that Anne Friedman said, you know, in writing, um, she claimed that these people had seen the work and had validated its authenticity. They called these people, some of these people to the stand and, you know, statements were made like, you know, yeah, I 
I saw the painting for like, you know, a minute in her office, but I never gave an official, you know, I never undertook an official investigation. I never, you know, gave any official word about anything, you know? So basically she twisted, um, uh, the truth, uh, in a, in a lot of situations, it seems in terms of, you know, the making it seem like she had had these works validated when in fact she had not. The uh, question that we haven't yet uh, approached is, so where did these works actually come from? Where do these forgeries come from? And uh, Rosales and the Diaz brothers actually hired a Chinese artist, Peixin Qian, uh, who was living in Flushing in Queens to produce the paintings that they then uh, sold to the Nudler Gallery. Now, uh, this artist had been... Um, he had been relatively successful overseas in China, but when he immigrated to the United States in 1981, he struggled for a long time uh, to make a living for himself. He claims that he did not know that these works were being sold as authentic works by Pollock or Rothko or whoever. He told uh, ABC News in 2014, my intent wasn't for my fake paintings to be sold as the real thing. They were just copies to put up in your home if you like it. These people clearly knew this was a fake. How could they sell it as genuine? And this idea of creating oil reproductions. I mean, these were oil paintings. And the idea of, of creating oil reproductions of well-known works or similar to well-known works um, by famous artists, by master painters, this is not an un unheard of practice. Um, there are firms around the world that sell create and sell oil reproductions of existing works. And this was something we talked about a lot when um, in, in our episode on Thomas Kincaid. He made a business out of selling oil reproductions. Now, granted, these were uh, oil, reproduction, oil reproductions of his own works, but he definitely was following, in, in part, following a model that um, already existed. Just to clarify, what this guy's doing is not actually making copies and reproductions, though. He's He's making works that are in the style of these famous artists, but not exactly copying any painting that actually exists, which means that when it comes to the question of, you know, him making forgeries, it's a it's sort of, um, I think, a more problematic issue, because if he was just making a copy, then it would be much more... Um, sort of believable if for him to say, oh, I was just making a copy and you know, nobody could have possibly thought this was the real thing. It's like if you make a copy of the Mona Lisa, you're never going to be able to sell that as the real Mona Lisa. Everybody will know better. They know it's hanging in a museum, you know. Um, but he wasn't making copies. He was making works in the style of these famous artists. So when he calls them copies, that's really disingenuous. That They, they weren't copies. They were sort of like new versions of you know, paintings done in the style of. So that's why it's more problematic that it's, you know, it, it was, they could only be passed off as forgeries because they weren't copies, actually. Right. And this is, this actually ties in well to uh, sort of the next thing that I wanted to bring up, which is the 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 problematics of of uh, applying these words of of copying or in the style of 
in in a European or American context versus a Chinese context. And uh, it's important to understand that notions like originality or authenticity or reproduction or creativity, these are not stable terms across the world. So I want to look a little bit at the the, the tradition of, of Chinese painting and problematize this notion. Now, you know, I'm not I'm not bringing this this up in any way to suggest that this clears all possibility of known forgery on 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 the part of anybody in this case but as we'll see these traditions of authenticity of of reproduction are are different in different contexts and different locations different geographic locations and also historically as well but right. we'll get into that later exactly Looking to uh, the tradition of of, of Chinese painting, um, artists would learn their trade uh, much in the way that young artists learn today by copying matter masters according to very strict principles, uh, and it's it's sort of a a, a, um, a standard educational technique that you even find today. Uh, this idea that you kind of have to learn the rules before you can break from them. You have to learn traditions. You have to learn how to, uh, you know, accurately represent the body before you can represent the body in an abstract way. Still, though, traditionally, there's a much greater emphasis on respect for tradition uh, in China, um, uh, going all the way up into the 19th and 20th century. Um, there's this great value placed on being able to actually emulate the great masters um, of, of, of Chinese uh, art history. I, I want to give a, a, a greater sense of this by uh, sort of looking at a thread of artists in uh, a thread of Chinese artists beginning with the 15th century uh, uh, painter Shen Tzu, uh, who was a highly lauded uh, painter working in the realm of what's called Shan Shui, uh, which directly translates as mountain water and is often referred to as Chinese landscape painting. Um, although that that translation doesn't really give a sense of the nuances of what mountains and water uh, mean philosophically and in, in Chinese. Chinese tradition, so I'll be referring to it as Shan Shui. This artist, uh, Shen Su's work, uh, he it followed very much in the style of an earlier artist, an artist from the previous century uh, named Wang Men, uh, especially in uh, the kind of feathery brushwork that both artists used. And Shen Su's paintings were considered both an homage to Wang Men um, and also uh, an homage to the tradition of painting itself. And he was really lauded for this. Now, moving much further into the future, moving from the 15th century to the 20th and 21st century, uh, an artist, another Chinese artist, a New York-based Chinese artist named uh, Zhang Hong Tu, uh, created this series of works called Repainting Chinese Shan Shui, in which he fused together both Chinese and European painting traditions in ways that complicate both of those traditions. So one work I want to talk about briefly is uh, one called Shensu Monet, and this was done in 1998. In this work, Zhang takes the subject and a number of, of elements, uh, as well as the vertical format of the painting, 
from the work of Shen Su, whose paintings, as I just discussed, uh, were in part homages to previous masters like Wang Men. He then reimagined this work in the style of the Impressionist painter Claude Monet. So in, uh, in this work, uh, Wang Men and Shen Su's feathery brushwork is applied. Um, but whereas in their works, there's still this kind of crisp delineation of form and a high contrast of light and shade. In Shen Su Monet, there's a much foggier appearance and a, a purplish color scheme that uh, is associated more closely with some of Monet's works, of, the works of Claude Monet, particularly from the 1890s. Um, and as always, all of these images that I'm mentioning um, we'll put up on our website, arthistory.today. Now, uh, this is an interesting work, first of all, for uh, all the blending of these two traditions, which might seem at odds with one another. It may seem sort of weird to fuse together Chinese shan shui and Impressionist painting. The Impressionists, though, were uh, very much in influenced by uh, non-Western cultures, particularly Japan and Japanese print culture, not so much um, Chinese culture. But there, there was um, a significant overlap uh, in those two visual styles. The fusing of these two traditions also uh, brings up qu questions of art and its relationship to tradition and problematizes many sort of long-held beliefs. Um, for one, uh, we can think of this myth of Monet as being something radically new, but at the same time, we can very much situate Monet within this long tradition of landscape painting. And this is something um, we talked about at length in our episode on Monet and the birth of Impressionism. Zhang Hong Tu also even questions the authenticity of the Chinese tradition. In a text uh, that accompanied another one of his Shen Su Monet paintings, uh, Zhang states, quote, It is said that before Shen Su died, he was already famous. How famous was he? Listen, every morning when he got out of bed and opened his front gate, he would find that the river across the way was filled with boats, and the boats were filled with people who wanted to buy his paintings. Do you believe that? My guess is that it is probably a story made up later by forgers in order to convince people that there were a great number of paintings by Shen Su in circulation. That way, if a dealer took out 100 Shen Su paintings, you'd believe that 99 of them were the real thing, or maybe even think the whole batch was genuine. Is anyone willing to believe that the painting is a real Shen Su? If Shen Su had lived another 400 years and had happened to live in Paris, this might well have been his style, uh, as in speaking of the style of Monet. So there's a strong suggestion uh, or strong implication of uh, the constructedness both of Chinese tradition as much as uh, European tradition. These issues that Sarah has been discussing really come to a head in a kind of um, conceptual Gordian knot that is the Dauphin Oil Painting Village, uh, otherwise known as the world's biggest art factory. So... Um, this is a, a, a small town located in a suburb of Shenzhen, uh, which is a city of 10 million residents that's northeast of Hong Kong in China's southern province of Guangdong. And by the way, apologies from both of us for yes. mispronouncing any of these um, names along the way. We did our best to look up pronunciations, but that, that can only go so far. Right. There aren't uh, a lot of uh, concrete statistics, but it's been estimated that 
the 1.5 square miles of Dauphin oil painting village produces 60% of the world's cheap oil paintings. So what is the product here? It's an, it's an oil painting, oil on canvas made by hand. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's hand produced. It's not printed or manufactured, um, with any kind of machinery. Um, but there are just a, people describe it as a kind of factory environment because there are so many, um, artists who are just sort of, you know, sitting and toiling on these things, you know, hours and hours every day, day in and day out. And what they're producing is, um, a lot of it is, is sort of mass manufactured in the sense that, you know, they're produced by hand, but they're all copying the same basic set of images. If you, you know, go to Walmart and buy an oil painting that is a copy of Van Gogh's Starry Night, chances are it was painted in Dauphin. Or if you go to a hotel um, and see paintings on uh, the walls of the lobby or your hotel room, chances are it was produced in Dauphin. Now, there is a sort of scale. Um, they also produced um, images that are not copies of well-known paintings, although that is their bread and butter, particularly works by Monet and Van Gogh. Um, they also, though, produce paintings to order. So if you, you know, want to email one of these workshops a photo of your dog, they will you know, custom make a painting of your dog. But of course, that costs a lot more than ordering you know, one of their um, reproductions. And actually, you don't really order their reproductions. I mean, there are websites now that have sprung up, um, none of which are sort of official. Um, all of, you know, just basically Google, you know, Dauphin Oil Painting Village, and you'll find a lot of different URLs that all seem to be, you know, official, but they're um, basically all different companies that operate within this context. And um, you can maybe order something online, but really the bulk of their business is selling to wholesalers um, who then, you know, would buy thousands of these works and, and take them to the West and then sell them there to furniture stores, to, you know, hotel chains, et cetera. Again, statistics are um, hard to sort of pin down um, in this context, but uh, it's estimated that around 10,000 painters are working in this village right now, making approximately 5 million paintings a year. Um, and that only 10% of these would be the original compositions and the other 90%, as I mentioned, would be these reproductions. In terms of the cultural context out of which this oil painting village emerged, um, there are some commentators who have noted that copying is itself a kind of mainstream cultural practice in China, um, that particularly as China has um, had a rapid change in their economy um, and has seen the, the growth of a sort of huge middle class, they and undertaking huge construction projects to house this middle class and, you know, and to allow this new class to express themselves through the consumption of architecture and, and luxury objects. Um, that, uh, or not quite luxury objects, but, you know, are aesthetic objects, um, that they have taken to copying, you know, from the West, because there's not really a model available to them for what, you know, this kind of upper middle class, um, you know, suburban house and, and artistic objects might look like. Um, so you might've heard that they are actually copying entire European towns, um, so entire like Swiss villages are being rebuilt in like the hinterlands in China, um, or at least they were up until, you know, the recent recession. 
You can even say that the artist Ai Weiwei, who we've talked about um, in one of our earlier episodes, is very much operating within this context that his work is about, on the one hand, a Western tradition of of copying that is uh, coming out of the artist Marcel Duchamp, who invented the ready-made, this idea that he came up with in uh, 1913, that one could simply take an object that already existed and designate it a work of art. And Ai Weiwei, as I think we discussed, has made works that are you know, about Duchamp. He's clearly indebted to Duchamp. But on the other hand, his work is also about this kind of Chinese kind of copying that's going on right now, which has to do not with these conceptual games about the status of the art object, but has to do with these you know, broader questions about cultural identity um, and the expression of um, you know, a new sort of class formation. Another context for the emergence of this oil painting village is the global economy. So according to a 2005 article in the New York Times, at that point, um, United States customs information was showing that the import of Chinese paintings had tripled between 1996 and 2004. Um, so just in that one decade, uh, basically three times as many Chinese paintings were being brought in. And the article goes on to note that the market for these paintings in America seems to be condominiums and other second homes being built as part of this global housing boom. Um, so in addition to hotels and restaurants and furniture stores, it had a lot to do with decorating these homes that, of course, now we know in retrospect, I mean, from the perspective of 2005, they didn't see this necessarily. But now, of course, we know that this has to do with the the mortgage crisis. I'd like to note that and, that article specifically cites Florida. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to, to skip over that. Right. But yeah, my home state is definitely, <laughs> definitely um, not innocent here. Um, this has come so up at, before in the uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. It's always Florida. It's always Florida. Um, so uh, as you might expect, with the economic recession that happened as a result of the mortgage crisis, Dauphin was actually hit pretty hard um, because there went their market. Um, so that was reported on in 2008, actually. This 2005 New York Times article that I mentioned actually sort of has an interesting afterlife. It was read by a woman named Winnie Wong, who um, is Chinese-Canadian and who read it and initially wasn't that interested, but then ended up sort of doing a project for her PhD at MIT in art history um, on Daifen Painting Village. So she um, used some ethnographic approaches and actually went to China and worked as an apprentice painter and dealer in, in Dafen. And this dissertation project that she did wound up becoming a book um, that has now been published. Um, it's called Van Gogh On Demand, China and the Ready-Made. And in this book, um, which is uh, published by University of Chicago Press, one of the sort of major um, academic presses in art history, she argues that copying actually, quote, is part of a long history of art that goes back to the Renaissance, end quote. And so therefore that we should see these Chinese artists as not being um, sort of that uh, radically different or outside um, of the sort of Western tradition of art, but actually as sort of being an extension of certain kinds of practices that are very familiar in the West. So one of these is the Renaissance. And the reason she cites the Renaissance is because actually the original notion of the masterpiece originated when medieval guilds would test you for admission to the guild 
you would do that not by creating some new work of art that nobody had ever seen before. You would do that by perfectly copying the one image that that guild was famous for, that basically each guild had you know, one or maybe a couple images, uh, whether it was a Madonna with child or what have you, um, and their style was well known. That was sort of, you know, it wasn't the individual artist name that was known. The brand name was actually the name of the guild. And so for admission to the guild, you would have to prove that you could continue to produce that image that the guild um, that was sort of their bestseller. And so even in the Western context, our notion of the masterpiece going back to the Middle Ages involves perfectly copying a work, not inventing a new one. And in the Renaissance, we see this emergence of a sort of more modern notion of creative genius, where geniuses, as Sarah said earlier, like breaking the rules of art and doing something different. But even so, art education from the Renaissance up until the 20th century has always been built upon uh, copying exercises, that really the way that you learn to make art is by copying from other works of art. Another layer of complexity here um, is that, and it, it's cited in the title of this book, China and the Ready-Made, is of course the Duchampian tradition. So this notion that the act of making art is no longer tied to um, creativity, nor is it tied to even manual work, the sort of artisanship of an individual hand, Rather, it's a conceptual move. It's, it's a, 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 the process of designating something as art. And so in a way, we could say that these Dauphin uh, painting village artists are actually conceptual artists more than they are um, sort of traditional painters, although I think they certainly see themselves as traditional painters. And many of them have attended art academies in China that are basically you know, traditional kinds of art schools, um, you know, not teaching sort of radical um, conceptual art, for example. So to sort of extend um, the argument here, we could say that these um, painters in China are actually conceptual appropriation artists, maybe without even knowing it. So appropriation art is a movement that emerged in the 1970s, 1980s, where we see artists simply taking the work of other artists and presenting it as their own. So a very famous example of this is a work of uh, the artist Sherry Levine, who took a photograph by Walker Evans and then just reprinted the photograph and called the work after Walker Evans. And this brought up a whole host of issues about, um, about originality in art. You know, if everyone is always indebted to the people who came before, you know, where is the line between just copying and actually pushing into something new? Um, it brought in uh, notions of the canon um, and uh, the question of who gets to participate in the canon, um, who are the masters that we copy after. So Walker Evans is one of these modern masters of photography, and by reprinting one of his most iconic images, Sherry Levine makes us think about um, what kinds of images get reproduced and what kinds of narratives we tell ourselves about um, the, the making of art in terms of identifying um, what's been called the art history of the proper name. Um, so in other words, focusing on individual artists as sort of figures of genius. And of course, there's a gender politics here because almost always that individual artist who gets to attain that status, who gets to become the artist you know, that everyone wants to copy and be like is almost always a man and a white man at that. I think it's because of the conceptual complexity of Dauphin Oil Painting Village from its relationship to global economic problems to, um, you know, this question of a sort of Chinese artistic tradition, 
to the question of how it relates to a more Western artistic tradition and what the role of copying is in that tradition, it's been a project that many uh, Western artists um, have uh, decided to uh, engage with, and also many Chinese artists who work in a more conceptual, sort of contemporary mode. The first of these I'll mention is a project by um, the artist Christian Jankowski, who's represented by Lisson Gallery here in New York. Um, and this project is called the China Painters Series, and it's from 2007 to 2008, in which he had photorealistic canvases made, he sort of commissioned these works to be made by painters from uh, Dauphin. Um, and then he shows these and it sort of raises questions, of course, about who is the artist um, and also questions about what happens when you, um, you know, create works of art that purport to be um, realistic, to, that purport to capture reality, but in fact are the product of all of these manipulations and um, strategic choices. Another project is uh, by a Beijing-based conceptual artist named Liu Ding, and he um, asked the Dauphin painters to perform at the Guangzhou Triennial. Um, so basically, he assumed the role of one of the sort of um, overseers or bosses of one of these um, painting workshops um, in Dauphin. Um, and there's an interesting um, move that's made here, um, turning the sort of uh, more traditional act of oil painting into something that is conceptual and performative, which is also something that Christian Jankowski kind of does. So he um, sort of appropriates these people and makes them sort of work against their grain. And, you know, this brings in the question, of course, of exploitation, because um, many of these artists, you know, they want to be um, oil painters, you know, they, they went to art school with the dream of becoming well-known oil painters and it just didn't work out. And this is what they do to get by. Another project, uh, called imitation was initiated by the artist, um, Sanyuan Hao. He's, uh, born in China, but based in London. And he commissioned about a dozen of these painters to create works that were actually about their own lives. And this I find very interesting. Um, so instead of commissioning them to, you know, make another Van Gogh or Monet, and instead of commissioning them to make an image about, you know, like his family portrait or a painting of his dog, he asked them to actually make paintings about their own lives. And so this gets at a tension between the model of art that these painters are operating under, and then the sort of Western expectations that art is somehow, sort of more traditional Western expectation, that art is somehow expressive of one's own interiority, uh, of one's subjectivity, of one's lived experience, of one's personal history. So whether it's figurative or abstract, we have this idea that a painting, especially a painting, which is such a, a sort of personal medium, um, such an intimate medium, uh, you know, doesn't require all of the sort of heavy machinery that can be associated with sculpture. With painting, we really expect that it's something sort of raw and immediate. And yet what these painters in China are cranking out is the exact opposite of that. It's something that has nothing to do with them and their lives in the sense that they're not expressing their feelings and they're not copying works of art that are sort of from their own quote-unquote native artistic tradition. Although maybe what this work puts on the table is the fact that, in fact, what all of these works put on the table is the fact that, you know, what is cultural heritage in the global economy? So, you know, is it is it right to say that these Chinese painters, that they don't own Monet and Van Gogh, that they're not part of their tradition in the same way that they're part of the tradition of us living here in New York? I mean, really, what do I have? Like, do I really have more in common with Monet living, you know, in the suburbs of France, let's say, um, in the late 19th century 
than they do. Um, so, you know, it, all of this stuff gets put on the table by these projects. There have also been exhibitions that have attempted to deal with this idea. Um, there was a show called Made in China at the Ian Ross Gallery in San Francisco in 2013. And for this show, the gallerist selected a bunch of artists who sent one of their original artworks um, along with a photo of the piece to Dachen and had the works sort of painted and then displayed in San Francisco, both the originals and the painted copies. And so what uh, the gallery said they were trying to do was to highlight the way that we assign value um, to art, that basically um, it is based on a lot of factors, um, including scarcity. So this idea that, you know, we value a work of art if it's the only one of its kind, um, you know, it's the only black and white drawing by so-and-so artists that still exists or whatever. Um, and the gallery contrasted this with the way that fashion works, that, um, that nobody has any sort of problem buying knockoffs of like hot couture pieces. I actually disagree with that premise. I think that people do have a problem with like hot couture knockoffs um, and don't value them in the same way at all. But anyway, that was sort of the premise of the show. Um, another thing put on the table by the show, um, according to the Huffington Post, and I think this is right, is that it makes you think about this question of individualism. And at this point, again, in a global economy, I'm not sure how much these contradictions really hold. But for a long time, the story, I mean, at least I know when I was growing up, the story that I was told was that, you know, in Western society, we value individualism. And, you know, in China, it's all about, you know, getting along and going along and not standing out. And, you know, the nail that sticks out you know, gets hammered down kind of thing. By asking, you know, these artists to copy works of art that other artists have made, um, are they somehow being asked to actually identify with an individual position or way of seeing the world that they themselves don't really have the luxury of producing? So, I mean, these are some thorny issues, you know, that these shows are getting at. Um, one more that I'll point out, which sort of brings us full circle back to um, the questions, you know, that Sarah started with at the beginning of this episode about forgery. Um, in 2015, uh, a gallery in London, um, the Dulwich Picture Gallery, which is basically a museum of old master paintings, put on a show also called Made in China um, that was initiated by a conceptual artist named Doug Fishbone. And what he did is he asked uh, one of these companies in Dauphin to uh, copy a painting. Um, he paid $181 for this. And then they hung the painting in the gallery. And there was sort of a game that was played with the public where the public is supposed to guess which one was the fake. Um, and, you know, this raises the question of, you know, if it really is indistinguishable, if the public really can't tell the difference, then maybe in the West we need to reevaluate how we assign um, value to a work of art and, and also, you know, why we assign value to um, sort of authenticity if, in fact, the aesthetic product is indistinguishable. So to, to say it more simply, you know, if two people can paint the same painting and there's, they're really not distinguishable in terms of quality, why would we value one more than the other just because it was made by a more famous person or a Western artist or what have you? Without trivializing the fraud that was committed, it appears, um, by the Nodler Gallery, 
or at least by, you know, the, the sort of intermediary dealer um, who, again, you know, has pled guilty to these charges and who has, you know, openly admitted that she commissioned the paintings by this Chinese artist in Queens. Um, you know, th- that's a terrible thing. But if we're going to learn anything from this, um, aside from uh, the fact that, you know, research, you know, should always be done. Everyone should always, you know, cross their T's and dot their I's and uh, everyone should always be skeptical. And if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Um, maybe the bigger sort of questions that can be raised by this, you know, absolute sort of travesty um, are more in this vein about, you know, what does it mean um, to assess the quality of a work? I mean, I think, in, you know, it almost seems inevitable at this point that somebody should put on a show of the fakes, right? And and to hang them next to some real Pollocks and some real, real Rothkos. I mean, I don't know that we actually need to do that, but at least conceptually, it's an interesting, you know, sort of thought experiment. I mean, looking at the different works of art, can you really tell the difference? Um, by all accounts, yes. It, it really does seem that there is a difference in quality. Um, and, you know, as any art historian will tell you, and as all art history students know, you learn a lot by making slide comparisons. So just putting the two side by side may tell us not only why the forgeries are so lacking, um, but why the uh, real works are so good. And that's very useful to know, in addition to thinking about these larger questions of how we value art why we think certain things are are beautiful or important, um, and how sort of the role of culture uh, and and money plays into all of that. And that's something that sort of has been done. I can't remember what year it was, but we can look to something like the Mets show Rembrandt, not Rembrandt, uh, where it oh, was, of course, yeah, you know, where the 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 museum actually put up, you know, works that were known Rembrandt works and then works that were questionably attributed to Rembrandt and different people weighed in on whether or not, you know, different curators weighed in on whether or not something was a Rembrandt or was not a Rembrandt. Um, and again, this is, this is different than, than um, these, uh, the, 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 these questions of forgeries or copies in the contemporary and, in the, you know, in the Chinese context, but these, the, the question of value or how we, how we, assign value through things like creativity, scarcity, authenticity, you know, whatever. These are questions that museums, galleries, collectors, whatever, have, to a certain extent, been engaging with in in recent decades. And the sort of reproduction uh, factories that you're describing bring these these kinds of issues even even more to the fore, and I think we'll probably see a continuation of these of um, these kinds of shows, these conversations, um, uh, to a greater extent in the future. If you'd like to learn more about any of the stories that we've covered or see images that we've discussed, you can check out our website, arthistory.today. You can also connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash arthistorytoday. We love to get feedback on episodes or ideas for new episodes. Uh, and you can also get in touch with us on Twitter at arthistoday, A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y. So-